podcast. Uh, my name is Kelly Fox, and today I'm here with my friend Corbin, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, masculinity and its relation to homophobia. So hi, Corbin. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. You're fine? <laughs> well, you flew all the way here just to tell me you're doing fine? Yes. Um... <clears throat> So Corbin and I are really good friends. Really good friends, I would say, is an understatement. Yeah, Corbin, our best friends. Thank you. We got and we got matching tattoos. And we got matching tattoos. If I mean, if that's really good friend level, like I don't know what would happen when we got to best friend level. Oh I guess we we do a, a feminist podcast then. <laughs> I guess that's how we would start. Well, okay. Well, it took two days. Um, <laughs> you had to get over okay. the jet lag. Yes. Yes. I didn't experience any jet lag but Mm. anyway so yeah Corbin's my best friend and so I'm here with him um in Lawrence Kansas I think I mentioned a little bit with Andy we live in like the Columbus area and so um I came out here to visit Corbin and uh I've been talking to him about wanting to do this episode and so now we're doing it and we're gonna do another one yeah so uh just to start, I'm going to just have you introduce yourself. I have a few questions, uh, which are, if you listen to my last episode, they're the same as what I asked Andy, and yeah. So, growing up, how were you taught... Wait, am I going to introduce myself first? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just this yourself. random person. Yeah, just yeah, no, just, just No, just have okay. me on your podcast because you like me. I'm totally down with that. Um, <clears throat> I guess my qualification is that... Um, I'm a queer man. Uh, I identify as queer, cisgender male. And I don't know, in my writing, I, you know, I'm a poet and I focus a lot on not just queerness, but queerness as it relates to masculinity. Um, for example, I recently wrote a, it's more like nonfiction, like a nonfiction essay. And in it, I kind of talk about my relationship with my dad and his relationship with his dad who recently died and sort of how there's this weight passed down from father to son, especially as it relates to like what it means to fill a role. So like my dad has recently, you know, like I'm 24, my brother's 27, I think. Yeah. And so he's recently been saying like, he feels like he hasn't been a dad because he didn't teach us how to change oil and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the things that he, to him is like what a dad would do. Right. And for me, what I would see like what being a dad would be is very different. Um, so that's a lot of stuff that I explore in my writing. Um, and it's something that I'm exploring more and more. And I also really like to do queer criticism, um, feminist criticism. I've also, in my undergrad, I started the first intersectional feminist group at Northwest Missouri State University. Uh, I'm learning so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you not know that? No. Oh, no. It was called, I don't know if it's still around, um, but it was called SAGE, so Sex and Gender Equality. Oh. And um, I was also... I held a lot of different executive roles within the queer ally group there, but I was president for a while as well. So yeah, I've always been really interested in like the theory and the practice of gender and how it intersects with queerness because I feel like they intersect a lot, not necessarily in like, um, like a necessary way, like always they're connected, but I feel like they connect often. Anyway, I guess, yeah, my intro- that's my introduction. Wow. <laughs> I think my Libra side came out where I'm like, yeah, let me talk about myself. Wow. So you kind of talked a little bit about how your dad didn't teach you, like, some traditionally masculine things. So, like, how do you think you developed your own sense of masculinity? Well, I would say my... My current concept of masculinity is very different than what it was when I was growing up, you know, I grew up like at the kind of like at the end of the millennial generation. So I still remember like, you know, as they always say, going outside and like dial up internet and stuff. But like, even though we did have a computer and I was on MSN messenger and stuff and, you know, I had access to the internet 
for the most part of my life, um, I just never really had the exposure, I guess, outside of what I saw in my house and what I saw through the media that was presented to me. Um, I grew up in a very rural part of Missouri. My hometown has maybe 170 people. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> cute, huh? Um, surprisingly, we have like a, a barbecue restaurant. Nice. But it's in someone's house. So, like, it's, okay. I mean, it's like real. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, anyway. Um, so, yeah, growing up, it was very insulated, right? So, what I saw my dad do and like my uncle do and like um, really any other men, especially my older brother, I think I definitely like whether or not I realized it at the time, I looked up to him a lot in terms of what masculinity was. Um, and so for me, that was a lot like hunting and owning a truck and, um, you know, having posters of women up in the bedroom. And, um, did you have posters of women up in your room? I think the first poster I had was Lady Gaga from her <laughs> poker face music video. No, I really do think so. <laughs> yeah. I, I still don't know how I didn't know sooner. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I think a lot of the influence came from the fact that, you know, like it, it was probably a lot more conservative and traditional than maybe what, you know, men my age would have experienced growing up in perhaps more liberal areas or more diverse areas. Um, so yeah, a lot of it, if you imagine like, what do you think a stereotypical guy from the country would be? That's probably what I aspired to be. Um, you know, I remember going hunting and I cried <laughs> whenever a deer jumped out and I didn't want to shoot it. And, um, yeah, so not rip to the deer cause the deer <laughs> survived. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, like that kind of stuff I reflect on now and I, I, I don't realize, you know, how much, I've gotten rid of a lot of that internalized um, masculinity, I guess. Um, and how I would say I, you know, I think of masculinity now, you know, definitely it's a lot more, I guess, academic with terminology and stuff because I've gone through college and I studied a lot of that. But I would say it's more so how I see masculinity through the lens of queerness mm -hmm. because I don't even really identify as a, like a, as someone, I don't even really identify with that person who I was back then. And when I really started to understand my queerness, probably like in high school and then especially through college, I understood more and more that masculinity could really be what I needed it to be for me. Um, but I still definitely fall into traps. Like, I think it's natural for, you know, people to fall into, you know, gender schemas and gender roles and traditional ways of gendered thinking um, because that's what society still presents to us. Mm -hmm. So you kind of talked a little bit about, like, the country boy man <laughs> gender thing. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking Cute. of that vine. <laughs> country boy, I love you. <laughs> Anyway, um... You can cut that out. <laughs> I might. I might not. <clears throat> so, how would you... Like, outside of that, how would you define, like, what what is, like, a masculine man? And then, like, how do you think you're expected to, like, live into that? Or how do you not live into that? Whew. Okay. <laughs> not, not a big question. Yeah. Small question. I think it's difficult because something, you know, it's it's difficult for me sometimes to think about gender because I am cisgender. So, like, you know, my gender identity, as far as I know, aligns with, you know, the gender I was assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I often struggle between the idea that, you know, gender is a social construct and it's what society demands you to do in order to fill a role. But at the same time, also embracing the idea that gender and gender expression can be what you need it to be to accurately reflect who you feel yourself to be on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's difficult because I recognize that I want everyone to be able to express their gender however they want to. Mm -hmm. um, 
especially as a queer person, you know, I've encountered so many people in the community with so many different gender identities and they're all authentic. Like there's, there's no denying that how they view themselves is authentic and real. But at the same time, it can be difficult for me to conceptualize, you know, binary identities, like, you know, leaning toward masculinity or femininity without going to what society has taught me those things are. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm asking you for. What is, what is society taught you that masculinity is? Okay. Yes. So to me, masculinity, it's a lot of the stereotypes that you think of whenever you think of what a man is, right? So you think a man goes out, you know, makes money, um, even though, you know, in the, I think it was the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe, it became much more common for women to work, um, and it's so common, like, we just expect, like, women are going to have jobs, men are going to have jobs there's still this expectation that the man will be the one making the main source of income. And I've seen that definitely reflected in my, in my dad, especially who wants to be able to provide so much that he wishes like my mom didn't have to work, even though my mom likes to work. Mm -hmm. He, he wishes that she didn't have to work. He wishes that, you know, I could have gone to college without taking out loans and he could have paid for everything. And that if I ever needed anything that he could give me money, Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that class status is definitely a part of how I view masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the lower you are class-wise, the more likely you are to feel, to some extent, that your, that your masculinity is lesser, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is just from my own experience, but I also think about things like, you know, I love pop music. I, I listen to, say, like Nicki Minaj, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she has a song called Rich Sex off her most recent album, and she says there's no such thing as broken handsome. And I try to unpack that sometimes because, like, it's it's an empowering anthem because about it's about a woman going out and making her own money and not, like... I guess settling for a guy, if you want to consider that, like marrying outside of your class, which seems really problematic to me. But um, just the concept of not being with someone who doesn't make a lot of money, right? Uh Because that's not a man you want to have sex with. Uh And um, I think, you know, whenever I hear songs like that, and I, you know, I I hear them a lot more. and I think, I don't know, it just kind of bothers me sometimes to think about that. Um, so I guess for me, masculinity is definitely rooted in class and how we view class and relationships um, to money and income. I also think it is definitely related to sexual orientation and gender identity, right? Um, so masculinity of course is on part of the gender spectrum but society so often attaches preconceived ideas of gender expression to sexual orientation right um you know you think which one's the man which one's the woman in a a same-sex relationship we still think of sex as something that is defined by like a penis being inserted into an orifice right Um, so I think masculinity is all about that. It's about, you know, being the one who makes the money, being the one who penetrates. Like it's, 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 it's not the first time we've talked about penises on this podcast. I mean, that's true. Um, but yeah, to me, it's just like sort of how to dominate, Mm. I guess would be a more succinct way of stating it. But yeah, the ability to dominate. So, uh. How do you think you then live into this uh, societal expectation to be dominating? I don't know. I I talk to my queer friends a lot, Uh, my queer friends who identify as cisgender. You know, have you ever questioned your gender identity because you first questioned your sexual orientation or vice versa, right? Um, And I think that to a certain extent, almost every single queer person has question their gender identity you know we have this preconceived idea that gay men are, are more feminine um i mean you go even back to ancient greece and rome where you know sleeping with people of different genders was much more accepted in common um there is still this 
discrimination toward the receptive partner in a male-male relationship, right? So whoever's being penetrated, that's the woman. That's the lower, that's the lesser being. You know, they're not the one who is performing the traditional masculine role within that sexual relationship. Um, And so because I would say, in my experience, queer men, for example, they're already you know, outcasts or on the fringe because of their sexual orientation, they feel freer to express their gender in different ways. I think that straight men would be much more open to expressing their gender in non-traditional ways and exploring gender identity if the idea of gender and sexual orientation Mm. weren't so closely tied in society's mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, the idea of betraying your gender as a man is so negative, right? Mm-hmm. So if a, if a woman, you say, like, a woman acts more masculine, of course she's going to, you know, be made fun of. She's going to be looked down upon. But there's a certain element within society where they lift that up, right? Because a woman is then lifting herself to the status of a man, right? So she wears pants. She makes money, you know. This is... You know, right. It's like, I'm. it's not like I'm just, you know... A rough and tough girl. I'm a tomboy, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas with men, if you see a, a man, a cisgender man, performing something more traditionally feminine, it's seen as a betrayal, right? So I often struggle with that because, you know, I you know I watch makeup tutorials and I see, you know, lots of men starting to get into makeup and you know doing really great looks, you know. <laughs> their faces are beat for the gods. They're baked and everything. Um, but at the same time, I'm just not comfortable with myself enough yet to do that. And it's one of those things that I really struggle with. And I think another thing is I, it's difficult for me to understand the idea of being the dominant force when, as far as I know, I will most likely be with a man for the rest of my life. And so it's sort of like two competing, like, traditionally dominant forces, right? Um, You know, I actually... We're on an air mattress, by the way. Um, I actually... I feel like I'm going off topic. But um, I recently saw this post on Twitter where it said, a man should never let a woman look at the bill because the man should always pay. And so then, you know, I go into the comments (laughs) and, like, the replies, and then there's a gay man saying, like, Okay, so me and my partner both get to look at it. And then there was a woman who was like, so I guess me and my partner, we don't look at the bill. We just leave. It's a free meal. That's great. <laughs> right? Um, so, that yeah. That reminds me of uh, me making the joke, like, I'm on vacation, so we don't look at the price. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or like tonight when we were at that restaurant where he assu- the waiters assumed we were together mm-hmm. and that we would pay together. Mm-hmm. Right? But if you were to go in with a woman... Mm-hmm. They would be like, or someone who presents as a woman, they would be like, oh, so is this separate? Is it together? Whereas the assumption, if you see someone who's male presenting and someone who's female presenting together at a restaurant, you're like, oh, they're going to be together. The man's going to pay. Right? Um, I really hate that. (laughs) Yeah, because right now you have more money than I do. (laughs) It may not be much more, but you have more money than I do. Um, At least have more credit, probably. Yeah, you do. I've maxed out those credit cards, and that's something else we can get into. Um, but yeah, I I find myself trying to pick apart, you know, what part of this is toxic masculinity that I'm dealing with, what part of this is just me, me being extroverted and loving to be an attention whore and being the center of attention. How much is, is this of me being an ambitious person? How much of this is me expecting myself to be successful because society tells me I need to be as a man? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very complicated to me sometimes where I don't know, you know, is this something that is rooted in my gender identity and what society tells me, or is this just a part of my personality? So, when I think of homophobia, especially towards gay men, so, like, not women, I guess. Um, I think of, like, a need to protect masculinity, which you're kind of talking about, like, that need to not not betray your gender. And then there's the whole, like, gay becoming, like, a insult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as a queer man, how do you think masculinity factors into homophobia? 
Yeah, so I think, like I said, perhaps, you know, as far back as you can go throughout history, if only, you know, we had records that weren't straight washed. Um, <laughs> I would say that queer people, you know, even queer men, have been more open to practicing different, you know, styles of gender expression. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, once you're already on the fringe, there's a part of you that's like, why not explore that a little bit more? Mm -hmm. I know some people believe, you know, maybe certain um, gay men are more feminine because, you know, there was less testosterone in the womb, and, you know, there are studies out there saying, like, you know, the more... Um, consecutive boys that you have, the more likely the next one is to be gay because the woman's body starts to attack testosterone in the womb. And there, you know, it's like this whole thing about nature versus nurture and, you know, what is done in the womb, what is developed on one's own. And so I think, um, you know, it really could be a lot of different possibilities. But to me, it very much is I'm already an outcast you know, I'm, I'm going to try, I already feel different. So mm -hmm. it's okay to explore these things a little mm -hmm. bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just wondering, like, what do you think about, why do people connect, like, not, even if, like, someone isn't, like, queer in some way? Why do like, they connect, like, non-traditional like, masculine attitudes and performances to being gay? Yeah. There you go. Um... Yeah, for a very long time, you know, our understanding of sex has been penis, insert, okay. vagina. I guess, you, I guess you did already say Yeah, but, but we could, yeah, we could talk about that more. Yeah, let's talk about yeah. penises more. Yes. Um, but yeah, so it's, it very much is just like, who's the man, who's the woman? Mm -hmm. You know, and like I said, in ancient Greece and Rome, mm -hmm. the bottoms were looked down upon still. Mm -hmm. Um, in many instances, I really don't want a classics person to hear this and correct me out, but I know, I know from my readings <laughs> that it's true in certain ages and eras within mm -hmm. a, like class, the classical world. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think that's a, that has a huge carryover. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if a man takes say the receptive role, right. Mm -hmm then they're automatically more feminine. They're already performing the female role as traditionally viewed. And thus, you know, they're being lesser than, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because in the back of our minds, we're all taught that being a man is better than being a woman. Mm -hmm. So that's why, say, showing emotions, we assign that toward women. If men show it, they're being gay, right? Because mm -hmm. they're being feminine. Mm -hmm. No matter and what, like even if you have, like, the most mask-for-mask, top-oriented, like crazy muscle man out there who's gay, if he tells someone he's gay in the back of their mind, they're automatically going to imagine that he's the receptive partner, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's what all the gay jokes are, mm -hmm. right? Um, in high school, I can think of terms like fudge packer and things like that. Like, Cute. it's just all about anal sex, and I don't know why straight men are so obsessed with gay men having anal sex when, like, that's not the majority of sex that gay men have. But, yeah, I, I think it's you know, homophobia is a defense, mm -hmm. right? It's a way that they're trying to protect their masculinity mm -hmm. as they see it as a threat from gay men. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why gay men can't go and, like, necessarily be friendly to straight men at a bar because they'll think they're being hit on. Yeah. Because to them, that's their masculinity being threatened. Because mm -hmm. why would you dare think that I could be gay? Right, because it it's sort of it's an offensive thing to them, right? Mm -hmm. It's demeaning. Mm -hmm. It's to make them inferior, aka to make them. It, and it's it's just so weird because mm -hmm. it's like the worst thing in their mind is to be treated as a man treats a woman, mm -hmm. right? If a gay man cat called a straight man, most likely he would have like a mob after him. Yeah. But if a woman tells a straight man not to cat call her, she's being a bitch. Mm -hmm. She's you know, not taking a compliment. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I'm not, like, the first one to observe that. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, people are pretty aware that mm -hmm. perhaps in a man's mind the worst thing that he can be treated is mm -hmm. a woman. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes for straight men, cisgender men, mm -hmm. white men. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want to be compared to the marginalized because whether they want to admit it or not, they know deep down inside that there's an inequality there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that reminds me of, like, so I've kind of mentioned before on this podcast that I'm a seminary student, so I go to Bible school. That's not what seminary is. It's more than that. It's more academic. 
it's not just Bible school. Anyway, I don't need to defend that. <sighs> I'm going to a theological grad school, and so I think a lot about how some people will ask me, why do you think that gays are okay? And, um, <clears throat> so, like, my thing is the couple times that, like, homosexuality is mentioned in the Bible, it's, like, only talking about, like, gay men having sex, and, uh, especially the, the one in Leviticus. Where it's right up next to bestiality. Yeah. Um, like, the, it's, like, a man shall not lie with another man as he does with a woman. Like, I've read some commentaries that say, like, that's more of an interpretation of a uh, man shall not lie with another man as he does with a woman because that is demeaning to the other man and that, like, you're making someone betray their masculinity. masculinity. Yeah. yeah. So it's not about, like, the actual act of, like, gay men having sex is bad. It's that it's uh, demeaning the other man. Yeah, and I feel like I always get into this with, um, you know, respectfully, I try my best with people who try to cite Leviticus, right? Or oh say, gosh. like, you know, homosexuality is wrong. And I, I've had so many conversations because evangelicals will come and, like, preach at us outside of my academic building. And I'll stop and say, like, you know, I'm a literary translator, you know, and it's, it's just obvious the word homosexual wasn't around until the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And the concept of sexual orientation is still very new. Whereas if you look at the Bible, they're not going to, if you went into biblical, you know, went back to biblical times and you did your best to translate the concept of homosexuality, it wouldn't translate because that concept isn't there. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I think really bothers me is that people take context out of things like the Bible. Mm -hmm. They don't think about the cultural context, Mm -hmm. right? Um, as shitty as it is, a lot of societies, as far as we know, historically, mm-hmm. are patriarchal. Patriarchal? Patriarchal. Patriarchal. I don't know why I thought patriarchal was a word. Anyway. Okay. Patriarchal um, in structure, right? Mm-hmm. Not all of them. And, you know, it's a very much a spectrum. But the one dominant, and as we know it as the West, I guess, um, is the one that we see now, right? And it's what we inherited, and people just don't think about the context mm-hmm. and that it can't be adapted. It can change. Mm-hmm. It, it can be readjusted for us to better understand. Preach. Preach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just realized that I now have proof of um, me saying that I have a queer friend who <laughs> talks to conservatives. <laughs> Do people not believe you? No, I'm just saying that I brought it up in interviews. <laughs> now I have evidence. Evidence that it happens. Yeah. No, like I, I don't think that as a that queer people should be expected to always put on a smiling face and talk to people who think that they're disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I decide to do that mm-hmm. for the most part. Sometimes I yell back. I try not to. But I don't judge those who, you know, have their own reactions because we are being dehumanized. And I don't even understand that at such a level as someone with more marginalized identities would. Um, <clears throat> just like the the compounded feeling of being marginalized and oppressed and dehumanized, like as, say... Um, a trans person of color would, right? Mm-hmm. Like a trans woman of color. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just, I think the people who have the spoons to give that dialogue and have that dialogue should have that dialogue if they feel like they can. Mm-hmm. If they can afford them. If they can afford having the spoons. Um, so the next thing that I have is... You shared with me a paper that you wrote when you were... <laughs> a child. A child. <laughs> uh, was a, no, I was a sophomore in college. So still children. 2014. Wow. 2014. So, wow. like four years ago, four and yeah. a half years ago. I just graduated high school. I was a little ahead of you. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> so, uh... 
Yeah, so you shared with me a paper you wrote um, when you were a sophomore in college, and it talks a little bit about, like, this connection between gender and sexuality. So first, can you just, like, tell me a little bit about your paper? So it was for my accelerated composition class, and it had to deal with Rebel Without a Cause. And Which I've never seen and I, know nothing about. I really don't think it's that great, okay. but I mean, it's a classic, so I guess I won't totally shit on it. Or, um, so yeah, basically in it, I try to set up some historical context of like pop psychology, pre nineteen fifties through the nineteen fifties, um, especially regarding gender roles, masculinity, femininity, homosexuality, and I use Rebel Without a Cause as a case study for, you know, what popular culture thought of men, women, and gay people back then. Um, And then I also bring in some, like, you know, scientific research, some pretty awful advertisements and PSAs. And, um, yeah, I just tried to use that movie as a way to start a conversation surrounding, you know, those concepts. Uh, So there's a couple parts that I found, like, particularly interesting uh the first one was um it doesn't really have to do with homophobia but you had this part where you were talking about like boys have like a defined like idea of their own masculinity by age like three and a half and then like Mm -hmm. girls kind of have more leeway to figure themselves out yeah um why do you think that is well, I think the study was from, well, I think it was from the 50s, but I, I know I cited ones from like the 20s, 30s, and the 50s. Um, but yeah, I think, like I said, <laughs> and this isn't to say like women have it easier in the sense, um, a younger, less developed Corbin believed that, right? That wow. women get to wear pants, men can't wear dresses. It's a sign that men are more oppressed than women. Very stupid. I mean, um, that's kind of what I'm saying with this whole podcast. Well, I think there's men are. I'm more saying that men are oppressed. Right, and I think there's more nuance to it, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that men, you know, say are boys by age three, right? Already, I think they gravit. They said they gravitated toward more traditionally masculine toys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or like role playing in terms of dress up. Mm-hmm. I think that's because the boys are already on this pedestal, right? Mm -hmm. So if they were to lower themselves toward the feminine, Mm -hmm. that's negative. So they're already taught at a very young age, don't do that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas with girls, it may be more acceptable and sometimes even more praiseworthy to raise themselves up to the levels of boys, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So maybe that's why women, or sorry, maybe that's why girls you know, at least in that study, felt more freedom to, you know, play around with different kinds of toys and gender ideas. Mm -hmm. I just find it interesting that it's so young. Like, by three and a half, like, boys are already taught to, like, you can't do girly stuff. Right. And from my, if I remember correctly, that's about the time that, like, long-term memory really starts to kick in. Mm -hmm. Or at least, like, the ability to recall. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, my earliest memories are from around that time of, like, three and a half, four, right? So if I'm already internalizing those things Mm -hmm. as, like, a child, like, a A toddler, like a baby, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm already at this level and I'm told I shouldn't go down, Mm -hmm. I'm going to cling to that really hard, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas with girls, Mm -hmm. they may have more freedom with it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It was from 1958, by the way. This 1958. 1958. Two years before my dad was born. Wow. I don't know. I just think that's, like, sad, like, that we're teaching children so young. I, I also think a lot about, like, um, gender reveal parties and then how, like, knowing the gender of your child affect like how you raise it i mean if you really want to get into how problematic that is just the colors right blue and pink Mm -hmm. if you look into history pink was more of a masculine color what do you see jesus wearing in a lot of 
you know, what, what color does Jesus done in a lot of the older paintings, like Renaissance and earlier, or God, right? Sistine Chapel, pink, mm. right? You look at what, you know, Mary is traditionally depicted in. She's blue. traditionally depicted in blue. Uh-huh. And where that really changed was World War II. And a lot of people don't really understand that gay men were rounded up and put in concentration camps. The difference between them and the other people who were, you know, caught and, you know, basically put to death, uh, Mm -hmm. put on, you know, death's waiting list, Mm -hmm. is that it was illegal in Germany at the time to be gay. So once they'd already been, you know, shown to be gay, Mm -hmm. they went to jail. You You come out of a concentration camp, which, Mm -hmm. I mean... I don't know the conditions of jail. I mean, probably a little bit better back then. But but still, still, you see the liberation of others, but because you're gay, or even, like, people say that you're gay, Mm -hmm. you have to go to jail. And that's because Hitler marked gay men with an inverted pink triangle, and that's why you see that as uh, a reclaimed symbol in the gay community. Especially during the AIDS crisis, uh, it's often accompanied with the phrase, silence equals death. And so... I wish you had told me about this before I got it tattooed on my body. No, but it's I'm like... <laughs> I was like, I'm it's positive. I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I just feel like I'm learning something that I should have known before I tattooed it on my body. No, it's, it's very much a reclaimed symbol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that big switch happened because pink wasn't associated with gay men. Because Hitler said so. And to think about that, Hitler lives on in all of these gender reveal parties and, like, in all these, like, gendered clothing and, like, Mm -hmm. marketing Mm -hmm. because he decided to put pink triangles on men who were uh, accused of being gay. But I like the color pink, so. (laughs) Yeah, babies. Babies already know to be men before they're even able to remember I guess it'd be really good to have, like, a child psychologist at some point. Yeah, let me just find one. (laughs) Just find a child psychologist. Just walk in. Let me just find one and interview them. Okay. Um, I also... um, We kind of already talked about this. uh, About, like, you were... I said you also talked about how seeing two men together would have been seen as um, emasculating. And so... As a queer person, how does this emasculation change the way you express your gender? Uh, how does the idea of sexuality being connected to this ingrained gender construct affect you? Well, for example, I was at a park in Kansas City. I wasn't even doing anything affectionate with my boyfriend at the time. But some people rolled down the window and called us faggots. Like, just like that. I was walking down a sidewalk and I was called a faggot, right? Mm-hmm. So society creates these cues, whether it's, you know, I think at the time, the first time, you know, um, I had my hair up, it was longer and blonde. And yeah, it was a real bad decision on my part. Um, and then the second time I was just with another man and maybe like he was leaning on a light pole and I was taking photos. Like, wow. like that, that to them signaled gay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I think because I feel much more comfortable with my queerness, I prefer the company of women and queer people, like queer men, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not to say I don't have straight friends, but if you ask many queer people, say like queer men, Mm -hmm. for example, they will most likely feel uncomfortable in a group of men. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's not, you know, a hard, fast rule, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe the gay men who aren't into traditional masculinity, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe talk with the, quote, gay lisp, um, you know, anything like that. I know whenever I'm walking down the street and there is a group of straight men or presumably straight men, I automatically feel terrified. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to a lot of queer men who agree they also feel terrified by that. Mm -hmm. And then I've also, like heard you like or what oh my performance yeah yeah and it's it's really odd because that's not even like that is like me modifying my gender expression I'm talking now is my voice right Mm -hmm. 
and maybe it's a little higher pitched or maybe it has a little bit of that traditional like idea of a gay list but whenever say I go through a drive-thru or I'm talking to someone in a store and my roommate who's gay does this too we drop our voices and register and we try to sound really monotonous and it's something we do like without even thinking about it mm. I, I it's like code switching yeah it's like code switching where you know, I'll be talking to you and then, you know, asking what you want at the drive-thru. And then I go, yeah, uh, we'd like 12 nuggets, please. And it's like... I was hoping you'd say like 12 burgers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd like 12 burgers, please. Um, it's just really... It, it, it upsets me because it's so natural for me to do it, mm-hmm. right? And so I feel like I'm dishonoring myself in that way. Mm-hmm. But... As my friend says, it's kind of a survival tool. Yeah. Especially when you grow up in rural Missouri. So then the other thing that I took from your paper is um, talking about this, like, terrible... The PSA? Terrible PSA uh, called Boys Beware, and I'll put a link to it in this episode. It's so bad. (laughs) It is the worst thing. I thought it was... A satire when I first watched it. <laughs> I thought it was fake. It's not. No, it's definitely real. How old is it? I think it's from the 50s. Hold on. 1961! Yeah, so 1961. my dad would have been one year old. Wow. He would have been a one year old. We'll go with that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's this little PSA called Boys Beware. Um, and it creates this really terrible image of homosexuals. Apparently all gays are balding, have the traditional pedo stash, wear aviators and trench coats, and, like, drive around <laughs> looking for boys to, like, take. And then take. hang out with them all the time, and then he's going to catch the gay. Yeah, I think the progression is, like, they hang out as friends sometimes. Or, like... And, like, they play like, basketball. Uh... So the guy, or the little kid, like, or little kid, he's like, I don't know, 10. Um, I'm not good with ages. I would say he's more like 12. Sure. But that's a two-year, I don't know, I'm bad with ages too. Gays can't do math. <laughs> and I can say that because I'm queer. Go on. Anyway, um, so there's this kid, and he's hitchhiking, because, like, that's a thing that happened. And, um... He gets in the car with this guy, and then this guy, like, takes him, like, fishing, I think, and they do some other stuff together, some plain, um, regular Yeah, like, they activities. go fishing, and while they go fishing, he, like, shows pornographic pictures to the kid, and then eventually he says something like, you know, take your pants off, and... No, I don't even think he does that. I feel like it... I'm, and, like, eventually it gets to the point where he's, like... It, it was something like he warned that that would happen, right? But he's like, Timmy was a good boy and went and told the authorities. And and it's so weird because it gets to the point where the narrator says something like, if Timmy hadn't been careful, he could have been murdered because apparently gay men want to murder people. And they also say something like, I don't know what name they give the guy, like, Fred was sick, a sickness not of the body but of the mind. You see, he was a homosexual. <laughs> And it's so, it's so crazy to think about now. But people were literally terrified of gay people back then. Uh, I was going to watch it. But it's actually it. kind of long. It's like 10 minutes. Yeah. I think what I've seen is like only a portion of it. Like yeah, watch the, the full thing. 10 minutes. It's a ride. It's a trip. It sounds great. Yeah. I'm just going to do that in my spare time. I think they even have like a wanted poster. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so talking about that since we already have kind of described what happens in this video um so how do you think this creative image of homosexuals um affects people's image of the lgbt community especially uh men in the lgbt community and do you still think that image is the same today i think we still work to dissociate disassociate yeah disassociate ourselves from pedophiles uh, because that's something that's been just like superimposed over the community mm-hmm. and you know there have been shitty people in the past say like um, so for example like 
I believe he was gay, Allen Ginsberg, also a poet. Um, he was a, por- a part of the Man-Boy Love Coalition. Basically, he wanted to legalize youth sex with older men, saying, citing, like, ancient Greece and Rome, saying, like, this is natural. Real messed up. Um, but I think it's something that we deal with today. You know, you have trolls and, like, the far right creating these fake advertisements, like, you know pedophilia is a sexual orientation. I think they call themselves pedosexuals or something, and they say we are... It's not even that. It's, like, minorly attracted something. It's it's just, like, all this shit that, like, maybe some pedophiles are posting, but I think they found it's mostly, like, the far right and trolls just trying to fuck mm-hmm. up our image more and it's mm-hmm. it's so easy to and do that dissonance within like the lgbt community right and so we work so hard to distance ourselves and it's just it's a battle and it's unfortunate and i think you know men do see gay men as predatory even though you know like even though they view gay men as similar to women being mm-hmm. weak and non-threatening mm-hmm. you know you have um you know, the gay panic defense or the trans panic defense where, you know, someone's so surprised that someone's gay or trans or something that they literally murder someone. And in wow. some places it's like an actual defense yeah. platform in court. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think <laughs> we're still trying to distance ourselves from those things. I, I think we've made a lot of strides. Mm-hmm. And I think, of course, like society is way more accepting, mm-hmm. but there's still those things that we face. Mm-hmm. And still, ultimately, I, I don't know how we untie this concept of gay men being feminine and, you know, like more like women from the public mm-hmm. subconscious, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's not a bad thing to be a woman, right? But at the same I time... I know. Women, though. <laughs> but I would hate to be one. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it's... It's kind of unfair to these gay cisgender men, right? Or gay, um, agender, bigender, trans, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's unfair to them because that is them saying your gender identity doesn't matter because you're attracted to men. And if you're attracted to men, you must be a woman mm-hmm. or womanly. So I think just, you know, we just need to try and help people understand that sex is not Mm man-woman. Sex is a lot of different things. Sex Mm -hmm. can look a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in in the queer community, especially among uh, queer men, there's a lot of inter-minority policing, right? So you have men who are like, you know, I like men... Because I like men, that's why I'm gay. Or like, mask for mask, I only want masculine guys. Oh, and there's gonna this... Get, we're going to get to that later. Oh, well, preview. There's that. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my hot take. No, that's okay. going to be a whole other episode. Oh! That's, that's what I told Stay you. Stay tuned. I wanted to do one episode on, like, the outside to the inside, what the outside thinks about the inside, and one episode from the inside. Okay. So. Okay. So, Corbin showed an essay that he wrote to me, and then I showed an essay that I wrote to him, not that he finished reading it. I skimmed. You sent me two. I sent you two, but I'm only going to talk about one. Well, why would you do that? Because I thought it was more relevant. (sighs) Anyway, um, so I wrote these two essays um, for my theology class at the end of last semester, which I just found out today. I got an A in. Um, <clears throat> but... Applause. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote these two papers about um, the how the United Methodist Church, which, for those who don't know um, about the United Methodist Church, I am currently a licensed local pastor of the United Methodist Church, and the, lic- or the United Methodist Church is facing a split over um, the acceptance of... Uh, gay, lesbian, and bisexual people as um, ordained ministers, and then also over the ability to perform same-sex weddings, as there are a lot of people who have come out um, after being ordained, and then um, also, like, a lot of people who, you know, just want to be able to serve those in their community by doing same-sex weddings. 
I feel like my opinion on this is obvious by my tone. Anyway, uh, so I wrote two papers about, um, one about the United Methodist Church and how they can, or if they want to keep with their doctrine of all people being created in the image of God, then uh, how must they treat the LGBT community, and then another one about um, kind of this idea of the origin of sin and um, like whether or not sinning is inevitable. And when talking about like homosexuality in and talking about like whether or not sinning is inevitable, one would often expect for me to talk about like whether or not homosexuality is like something that's innate, but rather I talk about um, oppression being the most inevitable of sins and something that we're all uh, kind of, I think I use the term like we're all tilted towards oppression and how we're all like leaning towards the tendency to be oppressive and we need to work and um, ask for grace in that. Anyway, <clears throat> so that was what my papers were on. So, since I shared that with you, Corbin, mm -hmm. uh, so I wrote that essay about how I believe, as someone who cares most importantly about the liberation of all people and who feels like uh, oppression is the most prevalent in and, um, like I, like I said, I talked a little bit about, like, how I, at least as a Christian, um, believe that people need to be allowed to be freed from the sin of oppression, um, and how that freedom leads to a better, better world, better world. So, having talked about masculinity and homophobia and your own experiences with gender and sexuality and all that, what do you think about my liberation concept? What do you think of this idea of um, liberation from, op like, oppress the act of being oppressive well, as being something that can free you? Because I think that's really connected to uh, my concept of masculinity. Like, uh, I believe that kind of, like, masculinity, so going back to what you were saying in the beginning... Uh, masculinity is, like, this, uh, need to be dominant. So in the same way, I believe that, uh, everyone is tempted to be oppressive, to be dominant in some way, and that's why people are hateful or racist or homophobic, and, um, if you could be freed from that need to be dominant, then, uh, it would just be, like, a better place, and... It would be freedom for the person being oppressive and the oppressed. So. Well, if you think about Christ and, you know, Christ's first followers post-death, they would have been marginalized people, right? Mm -hmm. You think Jesus reached out to all people, not just the tax collectors, but also the impoverished, right? Mm -hmm. um, not just the virgins, but also the, you know, the sex workers. And... Yeah, there's a lot of sexism in there, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sexism to unpack. and But at the same time, you also have to think that Jesus was a figure of liberation, right? Mm -hmm. Liberating people from um, earthly confines and fear and illness and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so then you move on to early Christians, very marginalized, fed to lions, you know, Christianity was illegal, but now Christianity, for a very long time, obviously, um, has been a very strong force in the West, and even more so, like, now globally, it's a very strong force. Mm -hmm. Even with, you know, the rise of secularism, mm -hmm. Christianity is still, at least in many places, the dominant norm, the oppressor, mm -hmm. right? So... In order to get back to those roots, I think we need to remind ourselves that religion generally is a means of equalizing, mm -hmm. at least as I understand it through the Christian lens, right? Mm -hmm. It's about everyone being equal, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, the rich giving to the poor, the poor giving to the poor, 
it's about everyone working together. Mm-hmm. And it does get sticky when you talk about, you know, sexual orientation, gender expression. Um, but in the end, I agree immensely with you that it is about liberation in the end. Mm-hmm. And that that should be the focus, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, I guess how this would relate to your point would be I want liberation not just for queer people but also straight people are people who don't allow themselves or feel like they're mm-hmm. not allowed to explore their sexuality because mm-hmm. of society right mm-hmm. obviously I want to focus on the queer people first because they're the ones who are like you actively know, legally oppressed. actively being oppressed <laughs> but there is still oppression happening to people who feel like they can't explore their sexualities right mm-hmm. Um, and now that's becoming more and more accepted, at least, say, like, in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's why we're seeing such an explosion of people reporting themselves to be some color of queer, right? Uh-huh. Because they feel like it's more acceptable to explore. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that ties really well into feminism. You know, as a feminist myself, yeah, a man, I'm going to get perks of being a liberated person from the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. But I'm also already immensely benefiting from it, right? And so I feel like you can't liberate one without the other, right? You can't lift up femininity and womanhood without bringing down masculinity and manliness to the Mm -hmm. same playing field, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing. You cannot you know, bring up queerness without also bringing down heterosexuality and making that equal, Mm -hmm. right? And while, you know, the majority are going to lose privileges and things like that, ultimately everyone's going to be on the same playing field. Uh You know, once we do, you know, some serious equitable changes. I don't even know that uh, people would lose privileges. It would be just more everyone has them. You just don't have the privilege of being the only one to have it? Well, to me, it's... A privilege is a privilege because you have something someone else doesn't. Because it's exclusive. It's exclusive, right? That's how a hierarchy... A hierarchy is created. That's how a hierarchy is created, right? So... That's why people feel threatened by progress and by equality and equity Mm -hmm. because they are losing that yeah. leverage that they had, that privilege. Mm-hmm. And so while that privilege will no longer exist, you know, mm-hmm. in this leverage utopian, this, like, like this utopian world, mm-hmm. like everyone, everyone will be on the same playing yeah. field. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my point. Yeah. I mean, like that's, that's why I wanted to. No, I do disagree a little bit. Wow. I get your point And I think it's a very interesting point. Wow. You disagree with me. I said a little bit. Anyway, uh, so do you have anything else to say before I make you leave? Support your neighborhood queers. I'm throwing up a peace sign, but people can't see it. Yes. Anyway, definitely. Cool. So, um, if you like Corbin, (laughs) it's questionable. (laughs) Uh, there will be another episode with him on, uh, masculinity within the LGBT community, um, talking about, like, that kind of, like, mask for mask and stuff like that, stuff I have no idea about. So, we're gonna hear about that next time, and, yeah, so thanks for hanging out with us, and I know this one is a little different than the other ones I've done, but it's just because Corbin's my best friend, and I find it really hard to be serious around him. So... (laughs) Um, so I hope you enjoyed it, and, uh, come back next time. I will be speaking very soon. Okay. Right? That's Wait, it. do we, do we say bye? So that's the end of our, uh, first episode on queerness, um, in, you know, the DMAX podcast. So thanks for being with us. Tuning in. Okay, bye. Bye.